Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 545 with Arlen Smith. Being in, a, in an ownership role, in a leadership position, you are looked at with a different magnifying glass and from many different directions. And I think that the more you understand that and the more you give back to your staff positivity and encouragement and letting them know that they are very important to you, it will take your company, it will take whatever business that you're in to the next level. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Cash flow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future until now. Welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price introducing ethics suite the first and only misconduct theft and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously easily and securely from any device with internet connection however if you're an owner or manager you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurant unstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Arlen Smith. My man, Arlen, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am today? feeling unstoppable. Uh, yes, that's what we like to hear. So raised in Buffalo, New York, Arlen Smith earned his bachelor's degree in culinary arts and hospitality management from the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. After making his mark in Hudson Valley, he then set his sights on Portland, Maine. In 2012, Arlen Smith, along with Andrew Taylor and Mike Wiley purchased Hugo's from their mentors, Chef Rob Evans and Nancy Pugh. And in 2015, the trio founded Big Tree Hospitality, which consists of Hugo's, Eventide, Honeypaw, and Eventide Fenway. Guided by a commitment to generosity, hard work, and innovation, Big Tree Hospitality has earned two James Beard nominations and won the award of Best Chef Northeast in 2017. Obviously, we're just scraping the surface. Arlen, I can't wait to dive into your story to find out how you and your partners got to where you are today but let's get that motivational inspirational yeah. ball rolling with a success quarter mantra what do you got for us i'm definitely excited for today and as far as uh, a quote or a mantra one thing i always love to tell my staff um, when things are heavy when things are you know just really weighing down on on someone and they're really just diving into work and it's almost overwhelming i'll always say uh just remember it's just a restaurant what do you mean by that? Well, what are you trying to communicate in that situation? I mean, it's like it's only one one part of your life and your world. And I, I guess I never I mean, as much as these restaurants are part of my life and they are my life, um, there are other important things like the people that are a part of them, your family, uh, your friends around you. 
your neighborhood, all of those things I think are, are really important. And if you just focus on everything that is just right here, the restaurant, I think you lose sight of uh, what's what the world is all about. Yeah, man. And it's, it's funny and interesting that you say that because I found that a lot of the people I interview who are really successful in this industry uh, – the new wave of successful restaurant tours, at least there seems to be like this void of, uh, this void of what's the word I'm looking for. Uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, I'm at a loss. <laughs> it's just being, <laughs> Oh I mean the words that tip my tongue, uh, pre- pretentious. There's no pretentious, yes. uh, vibes in the air. Everyone's just like, welcome to my home. It's just a restaurant. We're here to make you happy and lose the ego, lose the formalities, like just be comfortable in our home. Right. Yeah. As much as you know, you feel comfortable with, cause there are certain aspects of the restaurant that are, important um to be successful um i don't ever want to lose sight of that you know hospitality uh, attention to detail um your staff all of those things are important but there are pretension pretensions in our industry that i'm i'm liking uh i like seeing that they're falling off yeah from a lot of restaurateurs who are who are getting it you know the the, the more casual approach um, since day one, we've always talked about, you know, losing like it's fine dining here at Hugo's without all the formalities of fine dining. Still high so quality, but yes. low. Um, yeah, there's no tablecloths. There's no yeah. like, you know, there's not like, you know, $50 glasses of wine, like the actual glass, <laughs> um, you know, things like that that yeah. I just feel like are, are not as important as what you're really trying to deliver to the guests. And that's our view. I mean, not to take away from some of the best restaurants in the world. It's just, that's our focus. I dig it, man. So where did it all start for you? Uh, when did you know that you were going to commit your life to hospitality and food and beverage? Um, I was a teenager. Um, I went to, my father was a, a plumber, pipe fitter. So my first job was working with him as his, as his gopher. So I, you know, I got dirty. Um, and I loved working uh, in those jobs. And, but one thing he always told me is like, do me a favor don't don't work like I'm working. Use your head. And you know, always like point. You always like poke me in the head. Just use this, please. Like go to school, get good grades. And I, you know, I didn't always. I think I did just just enough <laughs> when I was going to school just to get by because, you know, there was other things that I was interested in. I was always very creative um, in the art world. And um, once I took a job as a dishwasher to make some extra money to just buy my own clothes. Once I saw the restaurant world, I was like, oh, this is fun. You know, you can stay organized. You can stay focused. It's, you know, you're, you're succeeding at something every day that you walk in because you have a dirty plate and then you clean it um, and you're putting it away and you're rubbing elbows with some fun people. Uh, you get to make some awesome friends. Um, and a lot of them are a little bit older than you. So they're, you know, they're showing you like something that's just beyond the curve. Um, and I, I dove into it and I, you know, every now and then, once you get curious, when you're in those environments, you know, they, people around you give you more, you know, they, they show you more. Um, I remember, you know, being in the dish pit and watching a guy searing a steak on the stove and it smelled great. And I just, I walked over and started asking him some questions. And then the next one he made, he, he did it with me and he's like, you like this. And then he happened to be a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. And, you know, he would, he told me about that. And so I got even more curious. He's like, you mean I could do this? <laughs> and then, you know, you just, you get into a vocational school and you're rubbing elbows with, 
even more people who are are capable and successful and so what was the caliber of this restaurant that you your first job was it a high scale or i mean you have culinary graduates there and in my mind because i was growing i grew up in chictawaga new york which is just outside of buffalo um to me it was like fine dining steakhouse <laughs> <laughs> for to, from today's standards and knowing what i know um it would be like a casual family restaurant um but that was exciting to me i didn't go out to eat when i was a kid unless it was something special to the family like you you dressed up you know even if it was chinese buffet you know we would all get in the car together we were all excited because we were eating together so moment like moments in a restaurant were serious for me it was never like routine or taken for granted and whenever uh, there's something that happens a lot on the show, and it usually comes from the story like that, that you just shared from us, a very similar story where they got on, they got into the industry, they had an interest for the industry, and somebody recognized their interest, and they yeah. and they you know groomed that interest, they cultivated that interest, and they sh- and they and they mentored that person, or at least showed this person that you know there's a path for you if, if you like this and you're good at it. And where would you have been if that that chef was just like, kid, get off my line, you're in the way? Like, what would yeah. have happened? Where would you be today? I don't know. Um, it's a really good point because it was the people along the way that boosted me up and encouraged me to go further. You know, as I said earlier, I was, I was creative. I was in, in the art world. I was, I was going to pursue art. I, I was thinking about, you know, architectural college. Um, when I signed up for a vocational school when I was in what 10th grade or 11th grade, um, there was a few options and one of them was cosmetology. I was cutting all my friend's hair at the time, <laughs> including, you know, all the, you know, some of my, my girlfriends and I like doing it. Um, but did I really see a career in it? I don't know. But it was when I, I took the culinary side of it, there was, it just seemed like it fit and it had, uh, I guess a little bit more of a reality for me. Nice. Um, to make it work. We got a lot of career ahead of us. So we're going to move this forward. And, And you went to the culinary Institute of America, uh, after this restaurant. So there was there anything in between that or was it just a, a, a shot straight to the culinary yeah. institute? Yeah, I went... Um, so from vocational school, I got a job at a, in a country club um, and that's that was like my first real mentor, two of them, uh, Michael Olday and uh, Chef Pascal, who was the pastry chef, um, who always called me his little puppy dog. And them getting behind me, they, you know, they not only just would encourage me, but he... He was very stern with me, Michael, um, telling me, like, if you want to be serious with this, he would hold me accountable, which I really appreciated. Um, but by doing that, he, he also, you know, wrote my recommendation letter. He put me in contact with friends of his that could help me get to where I needed to be, scholarships, things along the way that um, really made it, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college and, and graduate. So without those people, I've probably would have gone down a different path so real quick um this balance of uh holding somebody accountable mentoring them guiding them without necessarily coming down on them like get more into that relationship with this mentor and how he held you accountable and how we should be holding our people accountable well i think i guess knowing what i know now um it's easier for me to answer this question if you would have asked me this like five ten years ago it would be probably a different answer but Looking back, the way that he approached me, it didn't feel like I was being yelled at, but I knew that it was appropriate. Like I had to be held accountable. It wasn't like he threw a pan across the room um, and yelled at me like, this is how it needs to be done. It was like he would approach you be like, you see what we did here? This is what it needs to be. And this is why. And it was a conversation. Um, And that's 
a lot of what I like to do in you know my leadership now, you know, because I don't cook in the kitchen and you know I'm not a host at the door. I'm I'm looking after a larger part yeah. of the business, um, but I think it's we need more of that in our industry because it, d- it does have a bad rap of you know the military esque mentality. You know, I I have friends in the industry that who are in it right now. You know, it's uh, it's an ugly side. It's it's not necessary. You know, it's we are humans. We can communicate. We yeah. can be positive, and, <laughs> and, it, and everyone we go gets much lifted. further when we are that <laughs> yeah, way too. Yeah, so much Th- further. Three things from that uh, interaction or those interactions you had with this mentor. Uh, first, um, he didn't just tell you it was wrong. He he showed you what the picture of perfection was compared to what you did, right? Yeah. And he made it into a learning opportunity. So one, he he showed you the picture of perfection uh, compared to what you did. He he made it into a learning opportunity. And the third thing that just escaped my mind was that he told you why, right? Yeah. Uh, he didn't just say, just do it this way. Like he said, he, there's a reason why we do it this way. Why is that so important to explain the why? Because other, uh, otherwise it doesn't make any sense to do it. I mean, it. He's teaching you something that you can use uh, in everything. You know, Once you understand the reason of something, then you can look at it and, and figure out the how. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to think of an, a really good example of that, but... Um, in those moments, it's like, oh, well, that's why I'm cutting. Don't just show me how to cut it this way. The reason why it's cut that way is because once it goes into the pan, it's going to react differently with this cut. Then, you know, Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, absolutely makes sense. So who was the next mentor? Or is it, were there any other lessons from this time at the country club that you want to draw on? Um, I mean, all the guys I worked with there were awesome. Everyone looked at me because I was only 17 and they were in their 20s. And, you know, I was able to keep up. And I think that I got a lot of respect out of that. Um, and that felt really good. You know, being a youngster, you know, I'm, you know, I was driving around in my, in a tan little 91 tan Cavalier, you know, smoking <laughs> blunts and listening to CDs. Um, that was a different time for me. And I was able to start getting really serious about what I wanted to do. And, mentors at that point were just the people who lifted me up and it wasn't until i got to school where i mean i had some hardcore really awesome people who took me under their wing um talking about the cia now. the cia yeah. yeah um and i i understand it's a it's a very different school these days i'd love to go back and check it out but at the time it was a lot of old school stuff going on and i would, i learned a lot and i had a lot of fun and I'm really glad I did it. So you came up in uh, the Hudson Valley area as far as after culinary school. Um, yeah, I was 19 when I went. So when you graduated and you entered into the workforce, did you have a plan? Did you have a strategy? Like what was going through your mind? No, it, it changed all along the way. <laughs> um, actually, while I went to school to be a chef and halfway through it when I needed to get a job um, to just support myself. I mean, it was, you can only live off of loans for so long. Um, a friend of mine got me a serving position at this place called Gigi Trattoria. And it was like one of the hottest restaurants in Rhinebeck at the time. Um, really awesome food, uh, really high energy. And I had just taken like a serving class at school. It was like, I had no experience, (laughs) but I was, I was, I've always enjoyed talking to people. So once I dove into it and I sort of got, you know, got a handle on the ropes and, it, I quickly realized that, well, it's much cooler in the dining room. That's, 
you know, the air conditioning's on out there, <laughs> not in the kitchen. Um, but interacting with people uh, was something I really, really enjoyed. Um, and then by doing that, I was also given an opportunity for a leadership position there, you know, assistant manager. And that just kept growing. And at the same time, I was going to school this whole time. My roommates and I started home brewing. So we were, we were brewing beer, and I loved that too. And something inside of me was like, I really got to pursue this in some way. Otherwise, I'm never going to forgive myself. So when you say pursue this, what do you mean this? Brewing. Okay. So I was you know, brewing at home with them, had this job with Gigi Trattoria, and I was also in, I was in my bachelor's classes at this time. And uh, one of my mentors, Brian Smith, uh, may he rest in peace, he actually passed away. Um, he, he knew how much I loved beverage and beer and he connected me with uh, Keegan Ailes, uh, Tommy Keegan from Keegan Ailes in Kingston, New York. Um, and at the, I didn't know at the time, but Tommy was looking for a brewer, and I was about to graduate in like two months. And he offered me a job. You know, my professor hooked me up with him to offer me a job, and I took it. So right out of the gate, I literally was I was graduated, and within three days, I started this you know, six day a week job also working at Gigi. So I was working seven days a week. I was prepared for that. (laughs) It was crazy. While going to school. So, well, this is right after graduating school. So I graduated and my job that I lined up was being a brewer. And I, I just really wanted to know what it felt like and excel at it. And I did it for a year. That was my goal, but I knew it wouldn't sustain my family and my life. So, which I was trying to build. And I, Left the brewery and then took full time GM position with Gigi. Okay, so, what year is this now? Oh God, um, oh five, oh six. So we're still four 06. years before moving to Portland. Yeah. You were two thousand nine when you moved to Portland, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, any lessons, uh, maybe operational lessons, business lessons, working at this brewery, or any lessons we can like? How did this form who you are today? Um. Well, one, I think knowing more more sides of the industry was really eye-opening for me. Like, you know, sort of like the the backside of things, like knowing how a brewery works, you understand so much more. Like, Especially being stuff. a front of house. You know, that's exactly. a, a lesson. There's things you can draw from that experience throughout the rest of your career. Yeah, and I think one of the, one of the biggest things that it has helped me throughout my career is having um, as many understandings of the sides of a restaurant as possible starting in the back of the house you know from the bottom up um working front of the house from you know being a busser slash server to management and then other aspects of our industry which are you know farmers you know getting getting into the into the farms getting in the production of beer things like that i think really gave me a a heads up you know any any restaurant you walk in if you you don't even have to show the the places that you've worked, you can just show them what you've seen and what you're capable of. And I mean, I know that when I look at a resume, that's like, th- those are the standouts. Um, and it what just, are the standouts? just the, 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 the just, vastness of yeah, just having, having an understanding and ability to, you know, you know, it, I guess a good example is like when you go to a table and you're taking their order, this is from a server standpoint and you understand what it takes in the kitchen to produce this food. 
you can sell that food very differently than you can if you have no understanding whatsoever. And same with the beer and the wine. Like knowing those nuances, like, yeah, the hops come in at you know, 15 minutes before the end of the boil. That's why it's going to have these really yeah. beautiful citrusy notes in the nose. Like All of those things contribute to someone's experience at a table. Exactly. So. What you're teaching them. You know, and when you, when you can add a new new knowledge to a product or an experience that that experience stays with you longer when you can tie it to new knowledge uh there's a lot of stuff that's going on there so when you can not just say these are our our beers on tap but these are our beers on tap and which one may be interested oh you're interested in in that one here's the story behind the the brewer and here's where they came from and they actually did this really cool thing like people are going to like resonate with that and they're going to hold on to it versus just getting somebody a beer you know, like you want to create those memories. Um, beautiful stuff. So, uh, what were you doing between 2005 and 2009? Were you man- managing that entire time? No, I actually, um, I ended up. There was a a customer friend of mine who was pretty well off, and he wanted his own restaurant. Um, and I think I was just young and dumb, and saw the an opportunity. And he gave it to me. He gave me this opportunity to work with a... He had a chef. He wanted me for front of the house. He had a space. Um, And I didn't... I guess I just never wanted to say no to something like that. So I left Gigi to to pursue this and ended up building out a pretty big restaurant in in an old Victorian. So there's those challenges. It's like it was a restaurant for a while, but it had been there for like 25 years going from like a... It's a, it's a historic building in Rhinebeck. And so the, those challenges of learning, I, I realized that I really like build-outs. I like the building and design of all of those things. Um, but I was also, I didn't have the experience. So I was literally playing restaurant. Um, you could were say you doing that, this build-out on your own or were you shadowing somebody? I was doing it on my own with, you know, we had a contractor. I guess I, I would be considered the GC, you know, okay. doing like, rip out and and design and um yeah we had people working with us so what did you learn from that experience your first time (laughs) building out one of these these projects um i learned that it's better to do things the right way the first time um (laughs) uh, so give me an example i understand um it just i think i guess this could go really deep um because i consider this like kind of a a mistake in my life but at the same time i'm grateful for it uh i didn't sign anything so i didn't actually have ownership even though that's what i was promised but thank god i didn't um so i had an out but those are the things that you are in hindsight like holy shit what was i thinking um but you live and you learn and examples would be like you know having an idea what the menu is going to be up front and then when we open the doors and it's not as busy as the owner expected just making these drastic changes always just because it's frantic not staying true to you know the site that we had in front of us um and that's what i refuse to do now unless it's given you know really in-depth uh consideration um, i don't think like uh, reacting too quickly when things aren't exactly the way that you want them to be is is not just scary for yourself, but it's scary to your customer base. People see right through that, um, and I think if you if you build something and and you believe in it, uh, you stay true to it until you know it's it's bullshit. What do you mean by when you react too quickly, your customers see right through it? What what do, what are they seeing? Like, so you put out there that you know, say you're you're trying to be. Uh, you know, casual American bistro, right? Your menu is going to have 
you know, a burger. It's going to have, you know, things that are very comforting, seasonal, all local, all those things happening. And then um, it opens up and it's not exactly what you want. And then this is just an example. And you then are like, well, let's put a pizza oven in. Let's do pizzas. It's like, what? It, that's <laughs> not going to change what's happening. There's, you know, I just think drastic changes like that. Um, people see through it. Like, why didn't you open up with a pizza oven? You know, why yeah. are you doing that now? It's it's sort of like it's so re- reactionary, um, and I think that hurts people a lot. So knowing what industry. you know now, looking back to that restaurant, it opened, things are going crazy. You're being reactionary. What do you know? now uh, that could have maybe if you knew what you knew now you could go back in time and change that situation what would you have changed I would have never gone into business with this guy in the first place okay <laughs> um, uh, outside of that though to give you a better answer um, is just keeping it professional getting stuff on paper making sure that you know a lawyer is involved um and that all of your that you are clear by your expectations to to protect yourself and the people around you, and it allows you to be a better manager. Um, and, and it holds people accountable exactly. too. When you when you have it yeah. written down and you clearly spell out roles and responsibilities and lanes, and when things start going south, and you can look to paper and say, "Hey, we agreed that this is your responsibility, and that's going south." Like then you yeah. have accountability. Uh, fortunately for you, like you didn't sign these things, and you could have an exit yeah. strategy. Which brings me to like another point: like if you are going into business with somebody and you're afraid that they might be a flight risk, make sure that you get them to sign a contract so when they do take off on you, um, yeah, you can protect yourself. And I will say, you know, to add to that, it's like not only just in moments like that where you're sort of uncertain, it's also in in the moments where you're so certain. Um, and an example would be like the partnership that I'm in right now. Um, the three of us worked together at Hugo's for three years before we created our own partnership. It means I was running the front of the house. Andrew was in the back for a year, about a year and a half. We ran Hugo's Mike joined on around that time. It was like Christmas of like a year and a half after we started. Um, I knew these guys and we're all very different. We all bring something different to the table. Let's, let's tap on the brakes real quick because I want to get into that. But okay. I want to kind of try to stay chronological. Well, what I was trying to stick to is uh, is the agreement. Like I was so sure about this. Yeah. And we still put all on paper, exit strategies, all of that. And I think it's really important for people to know that it doesn't matter how close you are to someone. It could be your wife. Get it on paper. Yeah, and I want to dive into why this relationship was uh, good, what made it a good relationship, how you guys uh, divvied up the responsibility and what that sponsorship agreement looked like. One other thing I want to bring up, during the interview chat, uh, the pre-interview chat, you were talking about a buddy that reached out to you, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, And how he was asking you um, on advice for getting a, a partnership agreement. Yeah. Um, and we just started kind of going back and forth organically and take it from there. Yeah, it's it's funny. He, um, a close friend of mine. He's one of the reasons why I actually moved to Portland. Uh, he's an incredible chef, but he left his restaurant in Kingston, take a little breather, and to figure out what he wanted to do. And he said he didn't want his own restaurant. Last time I saw him about two months ago, I don't want my own restaurant. Yesterday he calls me up, or reaches out, and says he needs uh, some advice on how to structure a loan agreement 
you know, how much should be paid back and when and all that stuff. And I don't need, I didn't even dive into it with him. I just told him it's a conversation and it's not black and white. And then he texted me today to say that he thinks he found a partner, a chef partner who has the ability to get a bank loan for whatever they need so that he doesn't need my help with it anymore. I'll call you later. I was like, now I have a million more questions. <laughs> like how does someone come out of the blue and is all of a sudden going to be in this partnership agreement? I just think they're, you know, like that's the, a very volatile. And these situation. questions are like, how, how well do you know this person? Yeah. What's their experience? What are their values? Uh, what are some of the other questions that were coming to your mind? Yeah, those are, those are some like, you know, how far do you want this business to go? Like, what is your five-year goal, your 10-year goal? Um, do you align on the type of cuisine it's going to be? Uh, what if it doesn't go great right out of the gate? Is there, is there a plan of attack? Um, are you designating, designating money to marketing, which I think, you know, branding and marketing is so important. It's not very tangible. So a lot of restaurants, they don't have it in their budget, but I think they absolutely should. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a big part these days of the success. Um, Making a note to talk about that when we get to what you guys are doing here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, take it to the point where you, how did you eventually find yourself in Portland, Maine? How did you get up here? Um, well, as I was saying earlier, I was, I was in this you know, volatile restaurant situation in Rhinebeck, and I just needed to get out. And uh, the person I was with at the time was also looking to get out. So the two of us, um, I, I actually had a job lined up in New York. I was going to go work for the um, uh, the chain group. But, I mean, New York is – it's so – I mean, I love New York. That's considered, like, my big city. Um, but I, I just wasn't 100%. And I was talking to my friend uh, Rich, Rich and Maya, who I was just telling you the story. He said he found a restaurant. Um, he looked at me and he's like, Arlen, you just need to go to Portland. Like, go <laughs> for a couple days. It's your city telling you you're going to fall in love and i went in the middle of winter it was february of 09 there was three feet of snow on the ground and I'm sure uh, your boogers were freezing oh my in God. your nose but i'm from <laughs> buffalo so i'm like oh this is kind of cool yeah the ocean's right there and the restaurant scene it wasn't what it is today but it was still pretty yeah fucking awesome what year is this 2009 this right? is 2009 so four is around uh hugo's is around at that time yes um yeah uh four streets around street and companies there local 188 uh, Navari Res opened up the year after or the year. Um, no, yeah, because they were here. Navari Res Beer Cafe. Yeah. Huge. Ridiculous. Um, Especially for that time. Oh, my God. It was like never seen anything like it, which is why it's what it is today. Yeah. But came, enjoyed the city for what it is. Uh, my partner at the time had found um, online that there was a, a tasting menu available of, of chef's tasting. <laughs> Um, on this really poor website, Robin Nancy's website was just, but it was what it was, you know, it didn't need to be anything else. And, you know, it, it was very fitting to the time, but they had on there, the chef's tasting for 120 bucks for minimum 12 courses. And I was like, 120 bucks. It's, it's cheap. Yeah. Especially to New York. Yeah. And you, and they needed like advanced notice. So, um, she set the whole thing up. We were all psyched. We, it was the first night we were here. We came down here in the space that we're sitting in right now, cold, blustery winter night. There was like maybe five other parties in the dining room at the time. And I, I didn't understand why they kept trying to get us to move our reservation up. We were trying to push it back because, I don't know, we weren't that hungry yet. But it's a 12-course meal, right? 
So we sit down at like 7.30 and Patrick was our server and he still, he still works for us today. Um, he had been there since day one for them. So they started in 2001. So really seasoned staff. The food starts coming out and I'm just like, where the fuck are we? This is amazing. <laughs> this still the best meal I ever had in my life was at this very moment. And they saw it. You could tell like they, they were feeding off of us and it ended up being closer to 20 courses. Um, and they just, they stayed with us the whole night. We never felt like we were rushed. They, they paired half bottles, which is something that we like to do in restaurants. Uh, instead of having like a straight pairing, like just enjoying a bottle for what it is, but switching it up and they had a great half bottle selection. So it was that literally that experience is what I fell in love with. And we decided to move here. And within a month we found a, an apartment moved here and I got a job as a server at local 188. Nice. So <laughs> local 188, uh, that's yeah. not around anymore. Is it? It is. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jay Villani, he, that was his first, he moved it from one location, which is where Pie Men is now. He moved it across the street to a larger spot right on Congress. Um, and he also, he opened up Sonny's, which he then switched over to Black Cow. He's opened up uh, Salvage Barbecue, which is, if you haven't been, I have to go. really cool spot. And it's not just about the food there. It's the whole vibe. It's big open. He curates some really cool spaces. So you came up to Portland because of your dining experience here. Why didn't you try to get a job here? I'm curious. Um, honestly, because I didn't want to manage. I was like, I want to take a breather. <laughs> yeah. I want to make some server money because server money is different than management money. Yeah. They make a lot more money and cash money. Um, and that was my goal. I was like, I get to make my own schedule. I get to like sort of relax for a minute. Um, but uh, my partner at the time did get a job here. And it was right around the time when Rob, he was it was his third nomination for James Beard. And it was a really good chance he was going to win, and he did. So he got the best chef of Northeast, and they exploded, and they didn't have any management. So she, like, nudged them and nudged me. She's the reason why I, I took the GM position here. Okay. And um, what was that like coming into a restaurant that's doing incredible food but has really no structure as far as management? How was it like that transition from putting that, that, that order in place where it wasn't necessarily. Well, it, it wasn't that it didn't have management per se. It just, it was Nancy and Nancy had a lot of her own, um, structures, a lot of structure. I mean, which is something that I learned so much from like the importance of, you know, the way you document things and the way it, it was old school, but it was still in place, but she, they didn't want to be here. I didn't know that at the time they didn't, they had duck fat. That was their passion. Hugo's was a big part of their life, but they, that's a whole nother story, but they wanted to sell it. We didn't know it at that very moment, but when you win this award, you're going to, you're going to keep rolling with it. And you, and they, they take such good care of their staff. So they, you know, that was in play, you know, they weren't just doing it for themselves. They were doing it for the people who worked here. Um, so why did they open it in the first place? Did you ever have that conversation with them? Oh yeah. Yeah. At length. Um, Johnny Robinson. So this is third generation. Okay. Johnny Robinson owned Hugo's started it back in 88 and it was an Irish gastropub. Um, and when I say gastropub, like probably one of the first of its kind, it was, it didn't have like a bar that you'd sit at. It had a bar that had a bunch of tchotchke shit on it <laughs> and red carpeting, a piano player in the corner, 
stackable chairs for the, the dining room, drop ceiling. Um, and but the there was thought going into the food. They were doing like you know farm farm raised food, um, but not really heightened. And for some reason, when Rob was coming up through here, he would stop in. I don't know all the details of why he started working here, but I know that he would stop in here to make some money and sort of cut his teeth um, with doing his own food because Johnny would let him do it. He would come in the kitchen and he could do whatever he wanted on the menu. That's awesome. And this is Rob coming off of like uh, White Barn Inn and French Laundry, like working with some of the, like Grant Ackett's era French Laundry. Um, so uh, he was so wide-eyed and just loving having the opportunity but johnny didn't want it anymore so he looks at rob and nancy being like well you guys should take this so he sort of pressured them into buying a restaurant basically gave them an offer they can't refuse they took it um and he started doing his own food and quickly it was on what year was this so that was 2001 okay so he had a a solid eight-year run or was it 2012 he sold it to so longer than that 11 years yeah 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 we look at his 12 12 um, the way that it worked out. So 88, we bought it in 2012. Yeah. So was he just ready to slow down? Do you think was, was, did he, you know, he had his run. He, he did, he made good money, got well, a good reputation. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, I have so much love for them and they are family, but they, they wanted to get something from this so that they could live their life the way they wanted to live it. They bought some land out in, uh, Livington. They, um, they had duck fat, which is extremely successful, yeah. and I think they just they wanted to be done with it because it wasn't. It's not a huge money maker per se. It's just it's a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of work to keep it going. It's very seasonal at the time. So you come on two thousand nine, just after you come on. I think it was uh, was it Andrew that came on as a sous chef, or was it Mike? Yeah, no. So Andrew came on as chef de cuisine like a month and a half after I took the position. So I was a part of his his uh, onboarding, which was fun. Uh, Mike didn't come into play until a little over a year later. Okay. So what was the original uh, chemistry like here when you came on board? What was it like? What was the energy? Um, there was a lot of Rob in the kitchen, which was great. You know, I got to I actually worked in the kitchen before I took the GM position. That's how they interviewed me. Okay. They needed help in the kitchen for a few things. Um, so I, learning from Rob was incredible. Like getting behind his food, there was no doubt that this was some of the coolest stuff that was happening and that i was experiencing um so the the kitchen was like rob and andrew next to each other you know the the menus were the cool thing about hugo's is that it could always morph and evolve uh to to the needs of uh the industry but also for the want of the kitchen like they get to try new stuff all the time there was a lot more molecular gastronomy going on then too which is really cool to watch and we had freedom in the front of the house for service too. We, I got to like change the way things were presented to, to guests and be a part of some really cool stuff. So um, the chemistry, to answer your question, was really good. Yeah, and it felt really good. At what point did the conversation ha- start happening between you, Andrew, and Mike as to like this could be a possibility? No. Who, who planted <laughs> that seed? Um, well, Nancy kept planting the seed in my head to tell Andrew that he should buy it. Um, he was married. He wanted to start a family and I didn't have a pot to piss in. Like I'm, I, I didn't have any money and I also didn't know I would want to own this restaurant. So a few things happened at this time. I kept telling Andrew, we went to like a Patriots game together and on the way down we were chatting and 
I was like, you, you, you could really do this. Like, you could, this would be good for you. You have your own place. You know, prop, this probably the staff would stay. But something wasn't clicking with him until one day he asks me to go to lunch. And this was right after uh, Don and Sam. So Don and Sam Lindgren own Rabelais Books. Um, to people in the food world, it was a really special place because it was one of three of its kind in the country where it's dedicated strictly to culinary books. Wow. Incredible. You walk in there, it was just so much going endless. But they ended up be, becoming more of like an Amazon window shop. So people would go in, buy the book on their phone. He, Don was over it. He was like, this shit ain't happening anymore. So they didn't want to re-sign their lease. They knew that Rob and Nancy were trying to sell so they nudged us to be like, you boys should get your shit together. You should buy Hugo's and do your own thing in our space because we're not going to be here anymore. And we're like, oh. And I knew the anatomy of the building. So their walls are right next to ours. And that's it. Those, they're not structural. So I'm immediately, my mind's racing. And the next day, sat down for lunch and Andrew had this idea of like, he goes, we, like, we should buy Hugo's and do our own thing next door. And I looked at him and I said, we, do you have a mouse in your pocket? <laughs> because how do I come into play? But he, he had ideas and he, at that moment, he also mentioned that he thinks that we should talk to Mike and the three of us should go into it knowing that none of this is going to just support the three of us with families. It's just not feasible in Portland. But if we keep growing and we build a solid base, then it, it has a ton of potential. And that's when we started talking about um, like what that space could be. And we realized that the one thing that Portland didn't really have is a true oyster bar that really paid homage to the, the main oyster. And that was the impetus of, of the whole thing. So a couple things. What was that? So when you guys decided, where were you even getting the money from? Because you said you didn't have a mm. pot to piss in. So how did you guys raise the money? Did he give you well, a better deal because well, you were from in-house? And- yeah. So okay. no, no. So we're equal partners okay. completely. Um, his idea was he knew he could get some money from his family. He knew Mike. He being Andrew. Andrew, yeah. Andrew could get some money from his family. And Mike could do the same. Um, and I also... I guess I have a lot of relationships with different types of people. You know, I was in front of the house and I had an idea. I'm like, there is a few people I could call. Yeah. There's really one person I really wanted to call. who's always a very good friend to me, um, him and his wife. Um, and I hadn't seen them in a while, but I know he had the means. You know, he, I mean, this isn't a millionaire. This is a billionaire. Um, but you would never know. He's very down to earth and someone who I had a lot of respect for. And I literally felt comfortable enough calling him on the phone and saying Hugo's is for sale. We don't want to see it to go in to anyone else. Um, I thought you should know. And that was a message I left for him within five minutes. He called me back and he was on his jet and he said, do I need to turn around? <laughs> and I said, no, I appreciate that. But um, really just want to have a conversation with you. And he quickly said, Put your business plan together. I'm going to be back on this date. Let's sit down. Gave him the business plan ahead of time. We sat down with him. He said, originally I was in for this amount. Um, now after hearing your story and what your plan is, I'm in for this amount. 
And in about 25 years, when you guys start making some money, you can pay me back. So, And that amount was the amount that got us to where we needed to be. So did he put up the amount to cover all three of your shares or just your one share? It didn't work that way. We went into it as the three of us are equal. So we were each a third equity. And the money from the parents was loan. Okay. And same with him. So none of us... We were all equals. There was no percentage due to money, which is, it's a, it's a rare situation. But that's a great situation. It's a great situation. Yeah. It allowed us to, to have an even playing field. Um, I think having three partners, um, it's really great checks and balances. Yep. Um, that way there's even, no tie in voting. Exactly. Yep. And, and you just accept it. Um, yep. But beautifully enough, I mean, the three of us agree on a lot together. Um, I think we work really well together. So what, what was it about your business plan that uh, made this person say, well, I was going to give you this, but now I'm going to give you this. What, what made you guys get even more? Um, he, he knew that it was going to be a success. Um, the numbers on, on paper were one thing, but to know what our plan was, when he saw the passion behind it, knowing that Hugo's was going to continue, we were going to do our own thing that was very unique to Portland right next door. Utilizing all the resources we had and keeping it tight, not being uh, too gluttonous in any way, just re- in trying to do everything ourselves. He knew that uh, we were going to have a really good opportunity. And if you talk to him today, he's like, he, he's more than blown away, but he's, he's so proud because he, he saw it and it happened very quickly. I love hearing stories like that because isn't that what capitalism is? Like when yeah. you do well, like you create opportunity for other people. Exactly. Right? Uh, I love hearing that. And another thing that I think is really interesting about your story is you're taking over a restaurant that was well-established, that had a brand, that had won previous James Beard yes. awards, and you're not going in with a new team of people, a new culture. You guys are just taking over. Yeah. Uh, so it's turnkey. So it's, you know, like you don't have to go in there and take a swing to see if you're going to create a concept that's going to work with people. You already know it works and you have the space that's going in next door and you can keep that impact, this team together. Exactly. Right, right there. Why did you guys choose oysters aside from the fact that nobody was doing it? Um, well, there was a few reasons. I think uh, the big one is like whenever we looked at any of our concepts, we wanted to make, we wanted to give Portland something it didn't have. I mean, Jay's oysters is down there, but it, that's like a, an old salty joint that we all love, you know, grab a gin and tonic and a, and a steamed lobster, like awesome. But we knew that we could, we could heighten that experience. The you know the, the lobster shack or the clam shack seaside, but turn it into something more of um, like a heightened uh, New England sushi bar, which is what we were going for. And we just we knew it was going to be fun, um, light, airy, and casual. Casual was key because we wanted to play off the model that Rob and Nancy did with Duck Fat is. You know, you call it the cash cow, but you have the casual spot, great price point, and turn a lot of people. Um, if you knew our business model going into it, though, I think uh, I think we said, okay, if we do 50 people a day with a 40, $35 to $40 check average per person, then we'll make this much money and we can keep moving forward. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> and like right out of the gate, it's you know it's been you know, you know quadruple. It, it's beyond so two hundred two hundred heads a night. Yeah, we're doing <laughs> in in summer we're five five hundred a day, sometimes six hundred a day. Sometimes people stand there and eat their food. They never even get into a seat. But it's the culture that we built in that space. It was it was a lot of it in the design, 
And we we chose an oyster bar because it, it would it'd be fun. Like we literally were just like we'll just we'll do a little oyster bar. You know, we'll have a little counter. We'll just You said the culture you built in that place. Yeah. And you said some of it's design, but we all know that culture goes way beyond design. It's the energy that's, you know, in that space, the the people that are in that space. How did you, what how did you build this culture? Like get into like what this culture is. Um well, the three of us have as much as we're similar, uh, we're also very different. Um, we all, we all like, we appreciate our staff through and through. Like, it, not, from day one, it's like the customer is not always right. It's our our staff is number one. That's something we've always said from the very beginning. And by taking care of them, they then take care of your customer like tenfold. And we're very generous. And I think that. Um, I knew that was going to be the case right out of the gate because it was instilled in us by Rob and Nancy. They were very generous. You know, staff was very important to them, and we wanted to keep that going. So I think by when we designed Eventide, um, we designed the menu with that in mind. We designed um, the the flow of the space to be very like kind of uncomfortable but very inclusive. Like people are on top of each other, um, and knowing that the staff was going to be able to do so much by being in there like being armed with so much and what i mean is like your your menu has just like some really awesome grabs like the brown butter lobster roll who knew that thing was going to be you know the success story that it is today but when you have products like that and you're a server you're going to just put smiles on so many faces and then they're happy yeah our staff i mean we still have some of our staff from day one our senior staff and there's multiples it's very fulfilling. Yeah. One other thing you mentioned earlier that I want to kind of tap on a little bit more and something I've seen time and time again, there's this pattern showing up and I'm just going to these restaurateurs kind of as people are recommending them to me very, very organically. And there's an increasing trend of people going into partnerships and it seems like it's the people that are in these partnerships that are doing the best. It's, I feel like it's really hard today to open as a sole proprietor. Uh, why did you guys, what do you, what's going on? With, why do you think there's so many partnerships now versus in the past? And what, what is it exactly that you guys do that makes your partnership so effective? Well, I think for us, um, it was the three of us realizing what each one of our attributes were. Okay. So what are those attributes? Like in Andrew, when he first sat down, he's like, I can't do what you do. He's like, I don't, I don't know anything about front of the house in the sense like he just didn't want to do it. And he knew that I had an understanding and, uh, and a huge amount of respect for his approach to food. So there's that. It's like, I didn't have to question, you know, what food was going to be like. And it was going to pull from his experiences with Ken Oranger down at Cleo and pull from Rob from Hugo's and Rotoro too. Right. Yeah. I had him yeah, as yeah. a past guest on the yeah, show. Nice. Terry Rotoro. Awesome. Not yeah, too yeah. Long ago. yeah. Oh, that's love to hear that. Um, so, and then Mike, you know, Mike, he's like, well, I really want you to meet Mike. Um, he has this, uh, just a way of approaching things that is very thought out. He has his master's in rhetoric, so you don't really want to get I don't even know what rhetoric arg- is. It's arguing. It's okay. professional <laughs> arguing. Um, and he's, but he's not an arguer. He's, he's very like, he's very thought out and kind and, and all of us have that. I think we have that approach to, uh. So going into a partnership, we knew that I didn't want to be cooking the food. I didn't want to be making all these money decisions or trying to figure out all that stuff. I want to do what I do best. And 
three of us just sort of took it on. There are definitely things that we we did throughout the years that maybe we wasn't our favorite, but um, we all had each other's backs. But when you have three people that can get in a lane and focus on three things, uh, Andrew in the back of house, you in the front of house, uh, Mike... Uh, Mike so was in the back of the back house. Back of the house. Those Was he work. more financial accounting? No, no. That Mike, Mike is side by side with Andrew. Okay. Um, they. It's funny to watch them work together because they fight like brothers. <laughs> um, but uh, Andrew's more of the, of the money guy. Even though we have our own financial person now, he's he has an understanding of that stuff. But when you can go into business with somebody or with people that you trust and they have their lanes and you have your lanes, you can make a much bigger impact yes. on that lane and you can transform people much better. The people that are working for you when you can just say, if you're the sole proprietor and you're in the back of house, you're the executive chef and you have a whole front of house thing. Like what happens if your GM leaves and you're responsible? Yeah. Like, like that's going to kill yeah. the operation. You, you, I think you, you are able to take advantage of so many more opportunities. And when we're in an industry, as we currently are, that has incredible turnover more than ever before right now mm-hmm. and how hard it is to retain people. Like You want some something that's going to be consistent in that front of house and vice versa in the back of house where you don't have to worry about what happens if my executive chef leaves. You know? Yeah. And one of the other, actually a few other things that might be relevant to what you're trying to get at. Um, when we were going into agreement for our partnership, um, there were a few things that I one thing I had to have agreed upon was spending having in the budget for uh, branding and marketing. I mentioned this a little yes. bit earlier. That was a, a deal breaker for me. And the the second one is just all of us being on the same page with generosity. And that's generosity to our staff, but also to our customers, you know, really giving it away. And I think. That's something that we learned from Rob and Nancy, and they allowed me to do that because it's some. I mean, I sort of took that from my travels, but they supported it, and we were able to take care of, like, genuinely take care of people to give them experiences that are are priceless. Uh, and so, paint this picture of generosity. What is generosity to you? You said giving it away. Paint that picture of what it, generosity should look like in your business. Like giving someone an experience that they're not even asking for. Um, it's not just giving them food. It's, oh, you guys are celebrating tonight. Haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. You know, maybe you had hung out with that person a few times. They're sitting at the bar, and you don't even like you take menus away. You ask them if they have any restrictions, and you give them an like you you send things that you know that they're going to enjoy. You start them off with you know some bubbles. This is just an example, but they're automatically their their shoulders drop. They're like, holy. Cow, this is awesome. Someone is caring for us yeah. right now. Um, and then maybe you bring the menus back and be like, I know you might be still hungry, but we just wanted to show you some some hospitality. So it's, when you say sorry, did you finish your no, thought? No, I'm I'm good. So when you say that you you wanted your non negotiables were the, the same values around generosity and also working in the uh, marketing budget, is this generosity worked into that budget? Do you set aside a certain amount of money that you can expend every month or quarter that goes towards like, oh, we have like this, this, uh, you know, reserve where we can throw money at creating these incredible expenses. Is that accounted for? We account for it, but we don't have a budget for it. Um, I think we possibly, I mean, we know what we spend roughly, but we never want to put like a, a ceiling on how to take care of a guest. And to give another example, like a server doesn't need a code or a manager to 
comp something. To or, comp something. Yeah. So if, say, you know, someone is just having a really great experience and they ordered the tuna crudo but not the toro and they were thinking about the toro, you know, the server just sends it out and delivers it and says, glad you're enjoying, thought you'd enjoy this as well. And they're yeah. just like, yeah, you know, you've you've anticipated something that they didn't even know they, they were going to enjoy. And I think by giving them those tools, they're able to take care of so many more issues or problems or experiences in the dining room without having this wrinkle um, in in their day or the or the customer's day. So some advice that's come from the partnership agreement is to work in non-negotiables. Uh, make sure you get those non-negotiables worked into the, the contract. What are some other pieces of advice you can give us regarding what should be in the sponsor or the um, partnership agreement? Um, Did I say sponsorship agreement the first time? I get those with my sponsors. I know, but so I'm I, with you. I okay. think we're on the same page. Um, uh, I think things that are really important to make sure you have is just like what the percentage agreement is, um, what the uh, the outlook is of, of the partnership, and putting in an exit strategy, meaning like the oh shits. What if someone dies? What's going to happen? So what should those oh shits look like? What What is the, a good strategy? I mean, I think it – honestly, I don't want to say exactly what it should be because I think it needs to be customized for for every agreement. And the reason I say that is because every, every business and every partnership is a little different and it should be. There are some standards, but a good lawyer – definitely have a good lawyer um, – will we'll get you there. It will – It'll comb through it and force you to talk about the sensitive subjects that a lot of people don't want to have. Again, if someone dies, what's going to happen? What if, are some if, other if subjects? If Mike uh, or myself were just like, you know what? I'm over it. I want to move to the West Coast. What's my out? Laying out like, okay, at that time, it will be uh, – the business will be assessed for whatever that is and, um, and a certain, whatever that percentage is or whatever the money amount is. Um at that time will be automatically given, um, but not all in one lump sum. Mm -hmm. It it would have, you know, it has to be realistic to, for the survival of the business, but have everyone on the same page with that. When you're signing on that dotted line, everyone knowing that, all right, if this event happens, okay, that this is what it is. It's not, it's a, it's a lawyer's problem, not an emotional problem, even though there's going to be emotions wrapped in it. Um, and you know, as opposed to death, like where does the money, go to who does it go to um, all of those things need to be on paper got you uh, one other thing that's really interesting to me um, you mentioned earlier like we can't handle um, covering our liabilities our expenses in life with three partners in one location but we know we can have this other opportunity next door where we can get another channel of revenue and we can have that be our cash cow did you have a number like how how much do the three of you need or what was the plan? Like what was your break even? Like, what, like was there a goal that you all know you had to hit to like make it? Um, no, I, I think, I mean, maybe they did. Um, I was just happy that we were going to, we were going to pull off this, this buyout and to be able to build a restaurant. Yeah. I was really excited about that aspect, knowing that we're all going to have a livable salary. Okay. And as long and I, and I just trusted in that. As long as we had a livable salary and that was going to stay true, then let's see where this goes. And I, and I, I think that's how Mike and Andrew thought of it. I mean, most of our conversations. But and and I, the reason I say that is because 
the success of Eventide was so quick that we didn't even have a chance to blink. It was it was happening, and we just had to keep making it work. We had to keep making more room for that to keep growing. And I think if we stopped and we didn't do that, it would have it would have died off. Yeah. So um, in 2015, you decided to develop uh, Big Tree Hospitality. Uh, what was the reason for having that? umbrella what was the the thought process there why did you set it up like that um well it was due to the growth of the business itself so bought hugo's bought hugo's um built out eventide quickly realized we needed more room for eventide so then we went back with the earnings of that year and redid hugo's to give it a freshened up look rebranded it a little bit still hugo's was this our part of the marketing expense that you had the branding expense or oh yeah that was okay. part of it yeah that was in there um we spent a ton of money on the renovation of this to, so at the time eventide was sharing a kitchen with hugo's so they were on top of each other and it just was not conducive to uh for that for eventide to grow in any way um but two of the stations that were back there were was dessert and Garmanger, so Cold Station. So we thought that if we redid Hugo's and open up the kitchen and put a bar around the kitchen, it sort of drops the curtain, which for us is fun and fun for the guest, and also pulls out those two stations in the back and puts them right in front of the guests in Hugo's, and then we could take that space in the back and dedicate it to Eventide. So we do that. And we still needed more space. Then Eventide just kept growing so rapidly. So we started to think of uh, opening up a commissary kitchen. And while we were looking for that commissary kitchen, um, the rest of the building became available in a, in a weird roundabout way. Um, so we took advantage of that. So now we have three, three, three restaurants in one location, all connected through one kitchen. And, you know, people say, well, where are you from? Who you work with? It's like, well, we kept saying AMA LLC, which is Andrew Mike Arlen or Arlen Mike Andrew, however you want to cut it. Um, it was just our initials. That's yeah. what it was when we were, like, signing papers when we were building an LLC. So it really didn't resonate. It didn't really tell people what it was for. And we knew we were going to keep growing, and we wanted to still build a commissary kitchen at some point. So we felt like branding our company – would be a great way for us to really show that we're serious about this and that there's many facets to this company. It's not just even tied oyster company. And also to share the story behind the restaurants. So there's the restaurants and their brand and their con like that, their front. And then behind that, there's the three of you. That's your, your, the the brand that you share together as a restaurant group. Right. Um, what are the benefits of having that separate brand? Um, well, one, it looks really good on a business card. Um, <laughs> but it was really great to, to really just put everything underneath an umbrella, an umbrella that we felt really good about. And Big Tree um, is very symbolic. Um, we're in the pine tree state, you know, brings you back to nature. Uh, it has a lot of strength. Um, it's funny, we joke because we came up with Big Tree because our friends, um, Bill and Carl of the East Ender down here, um, we had worked with them in and out of different restaurants around here for a while they started their own um their own food truck and they called it small axe and if you know anything about like bob marley and not really and (laughs) and the song of uh 
you know, uh, they're the big tree, like big industry is the big tree and we're the small acts. Uh. <laughs> and, and then they got their own, they got their own restaurant. Um, and they hate it because that's what they wanted to name their restaurant was <laughs> big tree. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was fitting for us because, you know, again, it has strength to it, brings it back to nature. Um, and we feel good about, you know, being able to have, we have offshoots, we have big tree catering, we have big tree foods, which is our commissary things that just resonate. So now I'm, I'm really surprised like even within the year, like how many people call us big tree now they're, they're not calling us even tight oyster company. I never wanted everyone to fall underneath the umbrella of the first success story because they're all successful. Yeah. So I think that's what it is for me. Cool. Oh, a couple other questions. We're already at an hour in like four minutes of recording time, but I still have more questions. Are you good on time? Yeah. Okay, great. cool. Um, commissaries, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of people are like, we get a commissary, it's going to solve our problems, and then they get into the logistics of a commissary of having to move food around and all this mm. other stuff. Has it helped you? Are you happy that you have the commissary? Oh, or 100%. It, so what's the secret to, to getting a commissary? What are the things that you do well that it's helping you and not you know uh, hurting you? Well, there's a there's a bunch of facets of what the commissary did for us, but the goal was to have a place that we could produce food for all of our restaurants, including after Eventide Fenway, because that concept we want to roll out, and all of the food is pretty much built at the commissary, shipped, and then assembled in those in that restaurant. And same goes for for here, which we sometimes we call this the compound or the, the Portland Strip. Um, like all of our chowder, our stews, our lobster killing, um, a lot of the stuff that we have on hand at all times, uh, it, it's now out of here. And here it was on top of ourselves. You couldn't produce enough efficiently. Um, so efficiency is a big one. So that's money in your pocket. Um, we had staff that was sort of, you know, definitely senior staff, very capable in the kitchen, and they wanted more. And we wanted to feed them more. We didn't want to see them go anywhere else. And it was like a perfect outlet for them. They got closer to their families. They're working nine to five hours more instead of like the sporadic craziness that's here. So we were able to feed some of our staff, um, which is actually one of the reasons why we kept growing. Because we have some awesome people that allow us to just, all right, let's let's do something with them. You know, yeah. Uh, and that's a huge point right there. If you have awesome people, you better be their next opportunity because yeah. if you aren't their next opportunity, they will find it. They will so go true. someplace else or they'll go create their own thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you haven't brought on new partners since the beginning, right? We have uh two silent. Okay. And they in house are they working here or No, they no. Just, no, they're they're outside. They're they're okay. friends of ours down in Boston. Got you. Yeah. Um so one other thing that came to mind while you were talking uh you put money aside a certain percent. What's the percentage you're putting aside for marketing? How do you budget for marketing and what are you doing? How are you prioritizing where that money goes? In the very beginning, we, we were the first restaurant to work with might and main. We were the, and they were craving to do a restaurant. Most of what they were what doing is might and main. Might and main, um, is a branding company gotcha. in town. Um, Sean Wilkinson and Ariel Walworth started it. Um, and I was friends with him before we even thought about even buying Hugo. So it was exciting to go to him. Must have been exciting what he heard. Oh my God. <laughs> and he was really into oysters at the time, <laughs> which he still is. But he was like, oh my God, I, I will do anything to make this happen. But we knew it was going to cost some money. But we sat with them. We got a, I think we got a pretty good deal. But I want to say, you know, it was 
thirty thousand out of the gate to really like build a website, do all the collateral material, all of that. Were you still using the Hugo's website that uh, Rob Evans had that you oh, yeah. beat up before? Oh, yeah. yeah, they. they <laughs> <laughs> we kept that rolling for a, for a minute. Um, we we focused on Eventide, and then. You know, as we went along, we just we saw the benefits of branding Eventide. So we now did it. We then did it for Hugo's. We, then we knew we were going to do it for anything that we touched. We were going to have proper branding behind it. What did they bring to your concept, your image that you would have not had without that thirty dollars or thirty thousand dollars investment? Uh, thirty. If we didn't have that thirty thousand dollars investment, I think it's mostly because that's not what we do. That's not what I'm good at. It's not you your know, life. I I can. It's not my life, and I. I just like when you walk into a place and everything you touch, everything you're seeing is giving you this experience that is clearly thought out, not an afterthought. Um, and I knew that we couldn't do that on our own. Exactly. We were focusing on other things. And that's the thing. It's like having another partner come on to your team where they, they yes. don't have equity, but you're giving them a lump sum, but they're serving as like another appendage to your company that you wouldn't have without them. And we're not, that's not our, like we, we're not, Maybe some people who do get into the restaurant industry have that ability. They are passionate about branding, and that's a, a strength that they can bring to the table. And in a restaurant group, that's a good person to have on your team. Oh, 100%. But if you don't have that person, then put the money up to, to get that Exactly. Variable. And it does a few things. One, uh, your customer feels really good. You hope. You know, if you have good branding, your customer's feeling it. And, you know, they're taking pictures of the menu. They're Instagramming it. They're... Um, they just feel good in the space. Everything they're touching, they're having good vibes. And then for you, you feel good because you're ultimately your because they extract your vision. Ultimately, your vision is being completely conceptualized and enjoyed by both yeah. both sides. And I think cool. it's really important, and I I highly highly recommend it to anyone. So the only thing we haven't touched on really, we mentioned it briefly, was that you opened your fourth uh, concept or. It's the yeah. same concept as Eventide, but it's, it's a, a similar location. It's, it's a break-off concept. Okay. So yeah. what was that like opening your first uh, restaurant that wasn't attached to the original Hugo's? Um, when I say attached, just to paint the picture for the listeners, it's literally three restaurants side by side by side, all sharing one kitchen in the back. Yeah. Uh, the Honeypaw, Eventide, and Hugo's. So this location was in Boston. Not only is it off-site, but it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive. Yeah, or a two hours. Well, it can be two and a half yeah. hours for sure. Um, well, we we all got together, and we I think we knew right out of the gate when we opened up Eventide Portland that the food would lend itself really well to a fast casual concept to the you know the seaside shack. Um, so that was always in the back of our minds. But once the success of these three were were moving along, and we were sort of like, well, what's next? We're, we, we would really benefit from having a commissary. How do you feed all that? We just started punching numbers and came up with this concept that we want to roll out, something that we really see in other cities down the coast. Not on every corner. Um, we still want to control all the product and everything involved with it, but um, that concept was us just being like, we could, do we want to do this? And we all agreed and we had two other partners down in Boston who wanted to help with it. And once we, once we saw like the map of all that happening, we, we put it in motion and now we just celebrated our one year down there. 
Um, the Sox are going to the World Series next week, and we're right in their back door. So it's it's been a lot of fun. You know, it does have its challenges um, and its scares and all that because you know you're it's it's big city. You know, it's, it's big money. It's a, it's a different animal. Portland is very mom and pop and warm and inviting. So what were what were some of the biggest challenges that you had to overcome in, in Boston with uh, being in that different market? I think. Uh, God, I could say so many different challenges, (laughs) but I think the biggest challenge would be the fact that, you know, we are like the success of Eventide Oyster Company in Portland. um, It's a, it's a tourist destination now. Like people, they land or their bus gets in They're They're lining up out the door with their luggage. They're not even going to their hotel yet. That's not the case in Boston. Boston has so many options with so many people, but the challenges of its traveling, it's like every neighborhood is different. And it, whereas like one neighborhood in Boston is literally the size of Portland. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a challenge for me because it's not, it's just not the same. It doesn't have the same feel. Um, and, and it's more of its own thing. It's basically, if you're a fan of Portland, it's the same food down there presented differently and in a different atmosphere and not full service. It's a counter service restaurant. You yeah. know, you're, 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 uh, you're ordering at the, at the counter. You're going to find a seat. We're going to text you when your order's ready. Um, it's just not as, well, it's a different experience. That's how I'll leave it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has yeah. been a great conversation. Before we go to the speed round, I want to give you an opportunity to bring anything to the table. Is there anything that you were hoping we would discuss? Any value you can add to this conversation that we can get out on the table before wrapping it up? Um, I think, I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but I, I just can't say enough about your the, the culture of your restaurant. Being in, a, in an ownership role, in a leadership position, you are looked at with a different magnifying glass and from many different directions. And I think that the more you understand that and the more you give back to your staff positivity and encouragement and understand and, and letting them know that they are very important to you, it, it will take your company, it will take whatever business that you're in to the next level because Beautiful. without them, it's nothing. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with cashflowtool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. Cashflowtool.com is simple powerful and predictive it's simple because it requires no data entry it's always up to date and it works on any device anywhere it's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar activity feed and anomaly detector you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises and it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow head over to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price all right i have a question for you 
How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry, with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based RestaurantEthics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you'll get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success Um, i'm sure um, past girlfriends would say opposite but um (laughs) i I find that I'm I'm a really good listener first, and then, you know, and then, in response, um, and that's helped me a lot. What is your biggest weakness? Um, chicken wings. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know what my biggest weakness is. I mean, I I think I'm, I am critical of myself. Um, I think sometimes I wish I had more patience, but I don't know if it's a a great weakness. Where's the best place to get chicken wings in Portland? Uh, great lost bear, extra crispy, mild. Good to know. (laughs) What's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Um, one thing I always like to ask, uh, I would say 90% of the time, depending on the applicant is, um, give me an example of a time where you feel you really took care of someone in the dining room. Okay. And what are you looking for? I'm looking for the, the passion behind the story, like how they tell it, the details that they remember. And I would say nine times out of 10, you get this like incredible experience that they get so emotionally involved in. Sometimes they're in tears. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Um, biggest challenge right now for me, I think, is uh, the balance of having a business businesses in Portland and in Boston and making sure that everything's being fielded and it's a constant struggle, but I think we're doing a really good job with it. Um, but it is definitely uh, the biggest challenge. So what's one practice you've adopted, um, or thing you're doing now to adapt to this challenge? Um, something I've always tried to do is uh, delegate delegation and just having conversations with people that, you know, are capable, um, and allowing them to do it, do it well, do it better than you. Um, and go make mistakes. Beautiful. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to behave. Ah, well, well I guess delegation. What I just said, I, I try to do more. One thing I, I'd want to see in all of our management team is, is delegation. No one needs to take on the world themselves. And the, it doesn't mean that you're not doing a good job just because you're having someone else help you. 
What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff? This is something that's common within your four walls, but not common within the industry. I think, uh, again, something that we talked about earlier is just uh, a generosity that you just don't see in in most restaurants. I know I, I think the restaurants that resonate with me and have helped teach me and the ones that I look up to and that have changed my life, they they have those properties and you know, an example would be like Eastern Standard, belling up to the bar in a rainstorm with your luggage, and you're sitting there, and you know they're anticipating your needs with hospitality and and just giving it to you. Beautiful. Oh, uh, how do you teach generosity? Um, I think it, a lot of it is them seeing it and showing them how you do it, uh, giving. Uh, so you teach generosity by being generous. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? I would have to say Setting a Table by Danny Meyer. The number I know one. That's probably number one. I know, but it's hard to not say that. What's the biggest <laughs> lesson you, you drew from that book? Um, the 51%. Okay. What is the 51%? Um, it said that basically the people either have 51% technical skill or 51% emotional. And it's. Uh, you want to hire the emotional because you can't teach it. You can teach the technical. Heard. Uh, if there was one tool or resource you wish you had uh, when you're getting started, what would that tool or resource be? So something that you have now that you wish you had earlier. Um, can I say a, a quality POS system? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we opened up Eventide Portland. We didn't have one. Jeez. We, we did it all handwritten. So I saw you were going with uh, uh, Toast. What was it about Toast that made you go with that there are a few reasons behind that. One, they're literally in our backyard in Fenway. Um, but the, we were having trouble with a lot of trouble with the one that we had. Um, and they just brought it. They brought like, they were willing to work with us on such a human level. It didn't feel like it was a big company coming down. It's just throwing hardware at us. They, and they worked with us. They, we've helped change their model, which is, uh, they've been there for us. I mean, no one's perfect. POS companies probably have like the worst rap, but they've, they've been there for us and, um, and we continue to grow with them. So, so what, what is one feature aside from their geographic location that you love that you uh, can't get? With I think their hospitality and yeah. you know, they're, um, John Myers, who's, um, is our GM of even tight holdings. He's been with us before we even bought Hugo's. He's like our it guru. Like he knows about that stuff. It's like in his wheelhouse. Um, and he has a, a lot of great experiences with them and he's worked with them and it's sort of, this is coming from him. You know, I don't, I'm not pushing these buttons every day, but he does, uh, he appreciates it because it, it grows with you. It comes up a lot on the show. It's a great, does it really? it's a great platform. Oh, yeah. That's great. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't feel or sorry, don't do well enough or often enough? Um, put their staff first. Okay, this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? I don't know. <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Oh. All the memories of you, your restaurants, and your work would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy to make us all just a little bit better. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Play good music on vinyl. Again, be generous and be kind. Um. Just be a good person. Arlen, I love this. Arlen, this has been a great conversation. You just triggered another question for me, though. Um, playing vinyl in restaurants, what are the regulations behind that? 
Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll ask somebody else. Play it at uh, home. <laughs> well, I wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent operator? Somebody that you really look up to and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today. Um, I believe you already interviewed him, but Garrett Harker of Eastern Standard. But if I was to say someone who I think is going to keep going up in this town in Portland, um, Chris Gould and... Um, his wife Paige I think they're doing some great stuff and um, yeah I see them as a restaurateur they have multiple restaurants talking to Paige next week oh so nice make that happen for uh, you tell her I said hi I will and let the folks at home know if you want to follow uh, what you're doing here uh, at Hugo's Eventide uh, Honeypaw uh, what are the, the best ways to connect with you maybe you want to come join your team what's the best way to connect oh uh, go to our website bigtreehospitality.com um, there's a lot of information on there, what to connect to every, every one of our websites has connections to it. Um, but yeah, reaching out via email when we're pretty responsive and we're always looking for good people. Always. doesn't matter if there's an ad out there, come to us and we'll at least consider it. This is episode five forty. Five, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 545. I'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as the links to the tools and books recommended. And again, Arlen Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning, my friend. You are unstoppable. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> much appreciated. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Arlen Smith, what an incredible guest, man. Uh, Really enjoyed our conversation today. Some really great takeaways from today's conversation, too. Uh, The first and foremost, I think there's a lot of emphasis on partnerships in this conversation and things to consider when entering a partnership and not letting the amount of capital brought to the table determine the uh, percentage that people should have. Uh, There's other types of assets like skill, knowledge, experience, dedication, work ethic. These things are valuable and they should hold weight when entering into a partnership and know your value and be really careful about who you go into partnerships with. Do they have the same values? Do they have the same vision? And do you trust these people? That's something you don't figure out overnight. That takes a year at least of working beside these other people and getting to know them and and developing that trust. Uh, Huge lessons in today's conversation. And then also we have to mention the value of valuing your people. You cannot do it without your people and you need to know that and you need to surround yourself with with incredible people and they need to know how much you value them. Awesome stuff today. Uh, Like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at RestaurantUnstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Cacciatore, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Uh, Those reviews also go a long way. So if you're in iTunes or Stitcher Radio, drop a review. They really help with my ranking. But the best way to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this resource with anyone and everyone you would know aspiring to do great things in the industry. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.